0: Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh, yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida.
1: (laughs) All right. Welcome back for part three of Preston Sturges. Last time, we were talking about the various uh, complexities and contradictions in his personality, which also show up in his work, using highbrow, lowbrow, bringing them together together, in uh, sometimes an uneasy alliance, and sometimes a very smooth melding, and also in his personality, his really kind of hatred for stuffiness and artiness and uppityness, but also his snobbery against sort of low uh, culture, whatever, uh, yet embracing them both, embodying them both, his uh, disdain for money, and yet his constant opulent lifestyle very opulent life carelessness about things uh his apparent in his work his appreciation of women his writing really great characters and then his really uh misogyny and disdain for women in real life his mistreatment sometimes violent mistreatment and certainly uh his neglectfulness and um controllingness as a husband
0: neuroses even yeah yeah definitely
1: neurotic so very interesting guy but and very interesting work very worthwhile work um
0: we finished last time with his 1941 hit the late eve which we discussed in the last part of the last episode but which we also discuss at length in our barbara stanwick episode right because that that
1: did star barbara stanwick and uh so anyway where we left him was at the peak of his career, he never really got any higher than this really, had worked very hard to get to this point. He's now a writer-director. The Lady Eve was a gigantic hit, and very, we believe, very reasonably so, deserved it. As soon as The Lady Eve was done, he, he moved into working on his very next film, and he always seemed to get a lot of pushback about his films, but he was able to push Sullivan's travels through because by the time... Uh, he was ready to start on it. The Lady Eve had hit the theaters. Uh, but he was—he uh, went right into filming the next one. He knew he needed to build his momentum.
0: Cool. So this is one that uh, we both love a lot. Was this a pre-existing script, or was it a new one? Do you know? Well, actually, you know, this was one of the first new ones that he did. Uh, in
1: 1941 is when the film came out. But prior to that, in 1940, he met uh, an actor named Joel McCrae. Joel McRae is kind of a tall, laconic, kind of, kind of handsome guy, very attractive. And McRae was an A-list actor, but he was sort of the second tier of the A-list. The top actor was Gary Cooper. Right. Gary Cooper was a top A-list guy. And basically, Joel McRae said, Well, um, you know, if, they, if Gary Cooper turns it down, then they offer it to me. Because they had the same kind of height same kind of laconicness same kind of middle americanness but mcrae he's he's his own person you know he's not he's not doesn't just fade into the woodwork he had a
0: very fine career but he didn't have. He wasn't packed with neuroses. He's kind of. I was gonna say he's kind of stolid instead of being like really sharp. Yeah, he is exactly Which, in a way would probably make him more of an actually good partner. <laughs> like yeah, <laughs> and a
1: great person to work with. Yeah, and you know he married a, an actor actress named Frances D. And she ended up then leaving. But she was also an A-list actress. And they had children. And he had a ranch. And everybody called him Papa or whatever. And they were married forever. And he just was a really kind of normal, regular guy. So there aren't going to be really any juicy stories about him. Yeah,
0: we won't be doing a whole series probably about his career. But we do like him a lot. Yeah,
1: he's very, very likable. Well, essentially, at one point during a, a filming uh, he had been reading a script that uh, Preston Sturgis had written before Sturgis was ever even known, and he, he liked it. And, and he said something like, oh, this is really good, complimented it. And Sturgis was nearby, and McCrae didn't know who he was. And so Sturgis heard that. <laughs> that From that point, he was in his good books. <laughs> so he decided uh, after he had done The Lady Eve, he wanted to write, actually write, a film for Joel McRae so the part in Sullivan's Travels was written for him and Sturgis contacted McRae or uh, maybe the studio contracted him and said hey there's this script for you Preston Sturgis wrote it for you and he says no you must be mistaken he must have written it for Gary Cooper <laughs> <laughs> and they just couldn't get Gary Cooper and Sturgis goes no I wrote, wrote this for you and you know of course from then on Sturgis could do no wrong also, as we remarked last time, Sturgis was very nice, very, very nice to his stars and to the people who quote-unquote mattered. And to the little people, he was a shit, as uh, William Demarest said, who was one of the stock company actors. He was very terrible, very abusive, tyrant, yeah. nearly a tyrant. And Eddie Bracken himself, who had starred in some of uh, Sturgis's later movies, said he really felt sorry for th- these actors sometimes. Uh, so anyway, but getting back to uh, Sullivan's travel. so he gets Joel McRae, uh, gets him back, you know, gets him cast. Not, it wasn't really a real big problem because McRae was fine. But then he, well, who the person he wanted to to star as the female lead, was uh, Veronica Lake. Now Veronica Lake,
0: I love Veronica Lake. Yeah, oh, I love
1: her on screen too. I wouldn't want to work with her.
0: Yeah. So. She's got kind of a low voice. She's, she's sexy, but like in a tomboyish way almost.
1: In, in a way, but then she could also be very stereotypically feminine sexy. Totally. I mean, basically the character of Jessica Rabbit in,
0: um, what's the name of it? Um who killed Roger Rabbit, was uh, drawn and written based on Veronica Lake. When I say tomboyish, I almost mean in like like a hangs with the guys kind of way, not in like a ho- hobbies or tomboyish she's or anything. A, yeah,
1: I know. She really, even though they kind of tried to cast her this way, she's not really a femme fatale. Yeah. She's more of
0: a, a, a good egg and a sexy good egg and with like irony and stuff yeah. like an ironic sense of humor yeah. but she has that iconic sort of over the um over one eye hairstyle that Jessica Rabbit also has that's parted on one side and then it kind of hangs down and hides half of your face yeah
1: it was it was her trademark of that long blonde hair and uh just FYI this film was done in 41 and it was right before uh, the US got involved in World War II, before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And afterwards, women, you know, were just like wanting to do their hair like Veronica Lake. She became a style icon. And it's much like, I remember when I was very young, the thing that I really remember is uh, Dorothy Hamill. Do you know who she is? She was a, a, an Olympic gold medal uh, ice skater, figure skater and she went there for the u.s and she won the gold medal and she was so famous and so hot and so you know with it for the time this would be in the 70s and her hair she had this certain hairstyle everybody everybody was getting a haircut like dorothy hamill it became the thing well that's what happened with veronica lake but what was happening is is that as the, as the men were going off to war and women were replacing them in the factories and taking on these jobs their hair was getting caught in the machinery. So the government actually went to Veronica Lake and said, you have to change your hairstyle. (laughs) And so basically, and she had to do a PSA that was shown in theaters telling women that they should pull their hair back (laughs) when they're working in the factories. (laughs) That's so funny. I know, it's so funny. Um, So anyway, because I mean the hair, if you could get your hair to look like that, I mean, it was a, it was it's silky and thick and smooth yeah. and super blonde, beyond shoulder length. But you have to have, you know, the just the right kind of hair for that kind of uh, yeah. <laughs> that kind of style. Anyway, we're going on and on about Veronica Lake, but she did she had that snap, she had that verve, she had that twinkle in her eye that Sir uh, just really wanted. And she had an intelligence that he liked in, in when he had a woman who was highlighted like Barbara Stanwyck there are other films as we go on later where the women are just, they're just totally background characters and they, they're like filler, they're yeah. filler. Uh, so it really doesn't, I mean, they have to look pretty and kind of and speak well, but just to say their lines, they don't mean anything, but she is an equal part in this film, even though Joe McCrae really is the star and he has the bulk of the scenes and the lines and so forth. And he's the one who goes on the journey. Uh, we are going to ruin, we are going to probably ruin this one. So really go watch this film before we talk about it for listen to us talk about it because it's just great anyway so he really pushed to hire her and what happened was is she wanted to do the film a lot and she didn't happen to mention that she was pregnant at the time and she was pregnant enough to show but she was able to hide it hide her showing for a while she knew that she couldn't hide it much longer so she was worried and uh, she lied you know and said she wasn't pregnant so she went to Sturgis's wife, who was pregnant at the time. This is wife number three with, who, with whom he had a child. And she thought, well, she'll be sympathetic. And she's always on set sitting around watching because that's what Sturgis demanded of his wife, is just always kind of be there and sitting around. And so she went and she told her, and then the wife told Sturgis. And so you will see in the, in the movie some of the costuming. There's a time where she, they devised this part where they go on the road so that she's wearing a hobo costume and it's big and baggy and so she's pregnant very pregnant in that and then there are also scenes where she's wearing a robe or a gown by the pool and it's interesting they only shoot her from like high up they don't shoot anything like below her waist level or anything like that yeah so you can see them hiding it once you know what what you're looking for interesting but anyway, she was great in the film,
0: and I had I did not notice in the slightest one before I knew this. <laughs> right,
1: exactly. I didn't really either. Um, but you know, the studio didn't want her because she had been. She's very, very difficult. She was kind of like Marilyn Monroe in that she was extremely insecure. And at this very early age, she's about twenty here. She's already an alcoholic, uh, and she's always drinking heavily. And so she was. She had a hard time. She couldn't remember her lines. She couldn't remember lines to save her life. But Sturgis worked with her extremely patiently and helped really develop this really great performance that she does. It's a, she does... A, it's the a best... I think it's the best performance and best movie she's ever been in. Yeah, absolutely. She's so natural. But Joel McRae hated working with her. In fact, later on, he was offered a movie, and he refused to do it because he'd be starring... He'd be in it with Veronica Lake. And he's like, no, I'm never working with her again. Um, so, um, basically... Um, she did like put them behind schedule their shooting schedule because she was always late and didn't know her lines it took so long to get a performance out of her but on the other hand uh joel mcrae snip snap knew his lines knew what he was doing always on mark and so those scenes went really really easily in fact um what there's one scene in this one of the best scenes it's uh early on very beginning where the story is that joel mcrae is a is a writer and director like Preston Sturgis and he has gotten he's gotten sick of all of these lightweight, frothy, stupid comedies uh, like the last, his big hit was Ants in, your pa- Ants in Your Plants of
0: 1939. Ants in Your Pants Oh, Ants in Your Pants of 1939 and he's also he's like a sort of a rich boy ingenue, right? So he's he's always lived the good life. And he, he wants to get out there. He wants to get out there, be with the people and the bread lines and the
1: and the hobos and find out what the real life is about and write a movie that really means something he wants to write a movie called oh brother where art thou
0: <laughs> which if you're familiar with the cohen brothers they then in an homage made the movie oh brother where art thou which is probably nothing like the uh, the joel McCrae's character in this movie would have made but well it is
1: probably after at the end of the movie when he did it where Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? It's probably the movie he would have made. Right. Not the one he would have made at the beginning. Right. Which would have been more like The Grapes of Wrath. Right. You know, <laughs> for sure. Totally. And, and, of course, the studio heads don't want him to do this because he's... Such uh, a moneymaker. maker. Money with his comedies. Yeah, absolutely. And... With a little sex, and you say, Well, I'll make this movie and I'll have the travails of men and the working class. And they go, With a little sex, and he goes, Oh, yeah, right, with a little sex. All of this I mean, these jokes are so insider. And so, anyway, he refuses to make the, the their film their way, and he wants to go out as a hobo, and so his butler gives him the clothes and dresses him up and gets him ready to go. And they want to follow him and watch every movie he makes, and he wants to get away. Well, ultimately, he meets uh, Veronica Lake, who is a down-and-outer. She's a poor poor girl who's probably always been poor, and she came to Hollywood to make it as an actress, and she couldn't. And all the producers were getting handsy with her, and she was sick of that, and so she was going to try to go home, and he decides he's going to help her go home. And ultimately, through back and forth and this and that. She figures out who he is and decides she's going to go with him on his journey, on checking out what it's like to be on the road, because she's kind of like, you don't know anything. You're going to really get torn up. And that scene in the office where he's talking with the producers and the repartee is just rapid fire, so fast. It really, really fits in with the tone of the time and the way these comedies work is dip, snip, 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 just rat a tat And joel mcrae which is really funny because like i said he's kind of like laconic he kind of you know he talks in a very measured way has a very calm voice it's just it's not his style at all really had to push so basically he's going i can't do it this fast i can't you know there's too many lines it's a and he talks and talks and talks and so sturges basically kind of did that that thing they do in the movies where they try to get some man to do something to go Ba,
0: ba, 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 ba. Sturgis goaded yeah. Joe McRae into doing yeah. the,
1: the. So McRae style. does. The, McRae did it, and so he did it, and it's like snap, snap, snap. Only took two takes to do it. Wow. He says, "Okay, I dare you." Not only do I dare you to do it, I dare you to do it in one take. Mm. Uh, you know, one continuous take, and so it took him two tries, and he did it on the second take, mm. and he did the whole thing without cutting. So basically, they did. Two days of shooting in two hours. Amazing. And so Sturge is true to his work ethic. Instead of folding that into the schedule and going, great, I can catch up on the time I'm losing with Veronica Lake, he just gave everybody a vacation for two days. Nice. <laughs> they just took off. <laughs> so by the time they got to the end of the, the shooting... Uh, they were nine days over schedule, so if, he, if he'd done what he should have done, they only would have been seven days over the shooting schedule. But they weren't that much over budget; it wasn't too bad, so that got it got all right. And so then, when Sullivan's Travels came out, it really just got mixed reviews. I mean, it got some very glowing reviews, but it also got pretty mixed reviews. And it did it did fine. I mean, it doubled its budget, so it was a hit. it was a success. But the studio were disappointed because after the Lady Eve which had made three or four times its budget, they were, like, disappointed because they expected, you know... A blockbuster. They expect every... So, like, just churn it out. Just keep churning it out, like, the same every time. I don't know, the studio makers, well, they were all about money. Of course, that's what it is. And so, um, you know, it it did well. But there was a lot of discomfort. um, A lot of very well-known critics were... They just didn't sit comfortably with them because they didn't understand the tone and this is where we get back into the high and the low the comedy and the drama now today we would look at this we do look at this film and go we're perfectly comfortable with it but Sturges kind of broke that ice because in those days it was it's a comedy or it's a drama now you could have drama maybe with a little comedic relief in it but the main characters are serious and they're not going to be comedy and to, to, to bring the two together in the tradition of Hollywood in that way didn't, just didn't work. They didn't understand it.
0: I guess that it's a good time to talk about more of um, what happens in the film, right? And so it is interesting because there's quite a dramatic shift in tone, but I find it very effective. Oh, I do too. And so Sullivan, or Joel McRae's character, is on his, his journey with Veronica Lake. And basically, you know, at first it's kind of a romp he really hits hard times. And so that's when he really starts to experience the depression and what it's like to be somebody that is homeless, is down and out. Well, it's a twist within a twist because it kind of starts out, like you said, a romp. And it's a kind of
1: light and then it gets darker and he actually has to sleep in a, one of those places for homeless people to sleep, a shelter. A shelter. Yeah, sleep in a shelter. And somebody steals his, his boots and he has to protect Veronica. And he experiences the terrible food. And that you know, and these bread lines, and the fact that you have to go and you have to listen to a, a religious haranguing and sermon before they'll let you eat, and that's like the price
0: you pay, is because people are trying to convert uh, various religious groups are trying to convert people and so forth and he goes you can't trust people necessarily because they're also just so needy right and so
1: it goes on that way so then what happens is he comes back to his life and says oh wow that was really rough and I I feel like I'm enlightened and everything so he decides okay uh, my last act as a you know person I'm gonna go out put on my hobo clothes and I'm gonna pass out money uh, to the poor so he walked the city handing out like five dollar bills or what was it $5 or $100 bills? I forget what it was. Probably 5 $5, $5. $5 bills. It was a lot of money for the, the, the people he was giving it to. And they're like, their eyes light up. And he gives it to them. Well, he goes down on the waterfront at night. And you'd think he would have learned by now. And he's passing it out. And some uh, nefarious um, crooks see him. They see that he's got this money that he's passing out. So they knock him on the head. And they take all of his money.
0: And leave him, I think, on a train car.
1: Yeah. He's off. And then when he gets out... The guards, because they had these guards on these trains to keep off freeloaders, as they called them, uh, who are people who are trying to uh, grab a ride, and they were very violent. Yeah, the bulls. The bulls. I think they call them. Yep. Uh, there's a whole movie about this that was done at one point where you know the the person, did, uh, the guy intends to stay on, and the bull is out to get him, and the it's basically a battle, and yeah, they would, I mean, they killed people, for sure, and beat them, and it was it was horrible. And so, anyway, he gets into a scuffle with the guy and accidentally kills
0: him. Now this... So he goes to prison. He goes to one of those southern prisons, and that's the real, like, that's the real hardship. Like, yeah. he didn't know nothing before.
1: Yeah, so there's a twist, and then there's a twist. And this is, like, the ne- the next twist that takes it even darker. And it's dark, because you get to see the, the labor camps.
0: Yeah, and the mistreatment, and... Um, and yeah, and there's you know, sort of sort of an exploration of what it means to actually be a prisoner. And there was at the time, I think, sort of a social a growing social awareness about how horrible the conditions were in those prisons. And we've seen some um, sort of reformist movies that tried to expose like when they would put prisoners in the in the box in the hot sun to punish them and things like that. So he experiences that. And then the spiritual height of the movie, happens in the midst of that and they get taken to a church and it's a black church
1: right and that's then that, that's the thing to that what I, I noticed this a lot in older films is that the uh, the, li, the liberal agenda thing that the like the uh, the House on American committees or the liberal agenda the socialist agenda the all you know and also the sort of civil rights kind of uh, viewpoint that HUAC, the House on American Committees um, group, was trying to root out of Hollywood, they really did exist. And, which I don't think is bad. Mm-hmm. And you can see in the films is, they're constantly trying to slide in black people in just to give them jobs, to uh, try to, uh, so at least certain filmmakers I should say, to show, and or to try to somehow show black actors as like actually giving them some chance to act, and also to show black people as real people, human people, Decent people, you know, trying to combat the stereotypes. The other person we talk about a lot who did this was Val Luton in his horror movies for RKO,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where uh, he's he's constantly, uh, you know, slipping in a black person trying to, you know, give him a little something to do. Uh, and the, the studios fought this not only because they were generally racist, but mostly because... Um, they wanted films to be able to play in every state in the United States and in the South with the Jim Crow laws um, what, what would happen is either they would refuse to play the movie or they would take the movie and they would edit it because they didn't want to see any black people so they tried to if they put them in the film they would try to sort of uh, isolate it so that the censors down in the South could just snip that part of the film out and then continue playing it as if they didn't exist Right. So that's what's so interesting with, um, with, with some of these filmmakers, because they managed to make it absolutely essential to the film that that person is in there to the plot or whatever. And in this case, it is an isolated scene, but it's a black church where they welcome the prisoners who are um, 90% white. To come into the, the, the church and watch a movie with them and have a service, but they're not haranguing them like these other white revivalists were doing to the poor to, to feed them they just they're just offering uh, companionship and comradeship and an opportunity to have uh, something something good in their lives
0: Now let's give up Gisson. So it's a very moving scene and I will say there's there's one other black character in the movie which is the only kind of off note that the movie hits for Mm. me who's Mm. like he's like a cook that Sullivan takes with him at a certain point on the travels and and it's a very sort of typical role in terms of super goofy slapsticky kind of eye-poppingy. It's not like pointedly offensive or anything he didn't intend that. That's the off note in the movie for me but then there's this scene where the black characters are really real people and then this sermon is really moving and and i don't know if they watch a movie but they certainly they watch some cartoons so um yeah it was supposed to be what
1: uh, what sturgis originally envisioned was a charlie chaplin film
0: and if you imagine
1: them watching charlie chaplin it works so much better i mean it, yeah. it works but it works so much better it's like perfect uh, that they're watching the tramp And everybody's laughing at the tramp and the way the world is just weighing down and crushing the tramp and the tramp spirit that Chaplin brought to the screen. But unfortunately, they couldn't get it, so they had to have Mickey Mouse. Right.
0: Yeah. I don't like (laughs) Mickey Mouse. So Charlie, yeah, because Charlie Chaplin, yeah, if you can replace that in your head... Um, he did this character, the tramp, that was very much dealing with social realities, but he was doing all this physical comedy and everything. Unfortunately, in the movie, it's a it's a Mickey Mouse comedy, but everybody's laughing at it, and Sullivan looks around and he sees everybody, um, just like, transported from the hardships of their lives and united. Is there anything else you want to say about this scene?
1: No, I think it was. I think it was fantastic. And then Sullivan, very. Well, we won't even say how he figures it out, but he does something very clever that gets him notice, and he ends up getting out and returning to his life. And returning yeah. to his life. The very end, the last scene is quite perfunctory, and it, it's just where he's saying, "Oh, I understand now the value of comedy to the human spirit." Blah blah blah. The end. And so I felt like that the end was very rushed and, and quite poor, but. The rest of the film is so brilliant and so great that I totally forgive it, because it wasn't offensive. No. So after that, we see again Preston Sturges coming back to, uh, as we've talked before about, he, his films are a lot about class. And in The Lady Eve, we're looking at the upper crust, possibly 1%. In Sullivan's Travels, we're looking at people who are near the 1% if they're not the 1%. and always the dichotomy the rich versus the poor and we hit that again in a certain way with the Palm Beach story which is his next film in 1942 again he really starts trying to get this one going right away while he still got that mojo going and uh, this is another new story this is not one of the old ones that he wrote and pulled out of his drawer but it really came from his exploration of women and women's beauty and the way women's beauty acted on him and he really had, he was very uh, uh, susceptible to it, and which may be one of the reasons why he felt so such animosity to women in his own life. I don't know. Yeah, ambivalent. Yeah, yeah. yeah they had uh, real uh, power over him. So basically, it, it, it's a societal exploration of how far can a woman go on beauty alone. Now, it's interesting, he writes a character... Uh, it's uh, to be played by Claudette Colbert. There were other people who were considered for this, but he really wanted Colbert. And when you watch it, she's not doing it. She's got her beauty as her tool, but she's really smart. She's the smartest person in the movie. She's very cunning and strategic and sly. So that's not on beauty alone. Right. You know? Uh, and so the, basically what the premise is, we have Joel McRae back again. Very happy to work with him. And he plays this kind of befuddled architect who has this really weird plan of an airport that's a giant net that's over the city. And the (laughs) planes land in this
0: giant net. I forgot about that. It's so silly.
1: (laughs) It's really funny also because it's, again, Sturgis, uh, as we mentioned in prior episodes, Sturgis was an inventor. Right. And he invented a bunch of stuff. And so he's making fun this guy's an inventor. Yeah. And he's got this wife who um, is, very, is beautiful and really smart and snappy. And a lot of men are interested in her, and she likes to flirt and go out. And he, this one really had a hard time getting past the censors. So basically what the story is, is she wants to sleep with a bunch of men, To get money to give to him so he can do his invention. Right. Essentially. And of course, he's the man and he doesn't want her to do that. He he doesn't want to give her that agency, shall we say. Of course, that would make him look really, really bad for one thing. And he'd be jealous. So she wants to have the freedom to do that, uh, to help him. So what she does is she leaves him in order to be able to help him. Because if she's not married to him anymore, then she can do what she wants. And then she can give him the money. Given that this had the Hayes Code going for it, and they had to do a lot of censoring, that's really what it is. Now, when you watch it, it's this is one of the downsides of this story. I, can, I think it's a one one of the reasons why it's not my very favorite one. Is you're kind of going, what's going on here, when they're talking? You really have to be able to read between the lines. It's very oblique. Didn't you think?
0: Yeah, for sure. Because and sort of the, what has to be the pretense is just that she's beautiful, and so men want to spend money on her and have her around and stuff. Right. The other interesting part is that her husband, as far as I could tell, he doesn't want her to do this. He doesn't want her to see other men and stuff, but he also, it's very, it's a very liberal sensibility in the sense that he's very much kind of like, you can do what you want, and he doesn't seem to be, like, morally opposed to her sleeping with other men or anything, so yeah. it's it's very, like, sexually liberated in that sense or sexually liberal um, in its undertone. Um, but, of course, he can't be actually okay with it or anything. Right, right,
1: because he's a man in in
0: those days. And in those days,
1: men supported their wives. I mean, if you were of a certain class, it was it was about your masculinity that your wife didn't work. Mm-hmm. Because then you could afford to not have that second income. So it's that and kind of thing. And
0: that's the kind of thing is like when he rails against in the movie, it's more about her bringing the money in than it is about... Her being with other men is <laughs> right. really where his issue lies. So I think that's very interesting, and it it, it is a subtle statement about sexual liberation, right. sort of
1: right. And it's also playing with the idea of the woman having more resources. In this case, she doesn't have the money in hand, but she can get it. And you look at Sturgis's life; he was married to, you know, very rich women, right? And so, so you're kind of like looking at that issue, even though the, the you know they inherited the money, um, he was married to you know. The, the woman who was the granddaughter of the guy who created General Foods. I mean, so huge amounts of money. So kind of like looking at the, the, the screwball way in which very rich people behave because their money kind of distorts them. And, of course, he was very distorted when he got money, that's for sure. Right. And what's interesting in the film, so essentially she goes off and she gets uh, a man to be betrothed to who is super rich, and that's played by Rudy Valley, who was, as, and we mentioned this before in pr- prior episodes, he had been a heartthrob singer in his youth in the 20s. And then now that he's kind of a stolid middle aged guy, Preston Sturgis discovered him and found that he had this sort of great capacity for deadpan humor. So he cast him. And this is the movie in which he sort of rediscovered Rudy Valley. Again, the studio didn't want Rudy Valley. But he insisted on Rudy Valley and it was a great choice. And um, so interesting because they were like, no, no, we don't want him. And Preston Sturgis says, I bet you, you're going to be paying Rudy Valley $2,500 a week by the time I'm done with this movie. They're going, no way, he's, he's nobody, he's nowhere. Well, by the time they were done with the movie and the movie went out and was successful, they, had, they hired Rudy Valley to a six year contract at $2,500 a week. There you go. Yeah. Which was. A lot of money and so anyway so valley's going to be the guy who um who she's going to marry and what's interesting is he's got the yacht he's got the yachting cap he's got different outfits he's super rich and he he doesn't balk it he buys her he buys her you know reams of clothes closets full of clothes jewels you know buys her just everything in the world it's, it's really kind of nothing to him in terms of what of The money itself but he has this little notebook at every expense even if it's like a a tip of a quarter to a bellboy he takes out his book and he writes it down yeah he writes down and it's not like he ever goes back and looks at it again or even adds it up or does any accounting with it but he just keeps track in this little book which uh, is such a a, a satiric comment on uh, on the wealthy and, and and their relationship with money right so uh, so anyway, she's gonna marry him. And then he has a sister played by Mary Astor, which is the weirdest casting ever. Mary Astor, uh, probably the thing that people most remember her for is that she plays Bridget O'Shaughnessy in The Maltese Falcon. So she is kind of middle-aged here. When she was very young and she was in the silent film, she was extraordinarily beautiful. She had a very hot love affair with John Barrymore when she was 16. And she had a really, really super oppressive mother until she was able to get away from her. She had a really screwy family dynamic and they were, wasn't very good. But she, um, in her younger days, a little bit before this, I think, she had a huge scandal where there was a divorce and all kinds of stuff going on. And so her diaries were subpoenaed by the court. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And these diaries Delineated all her affairs and what she did and how they performed. <laughs> and, there wow. and there were a lot, and there were a lot. And so they'd been this huge scandal. And so this was this sometime later, you know. And so she ended up being in this film, and it's a comedy, and it's a wise crack and snappy comedy. And that's Mary Astor, has never done anything like that. She really wasn't comfortable with it at all. She'd never done any comedy. She was totally uncomfortable in this role. I think, in a way, it's kind of in. She kind of adds a little spice to it because she's kind of interesting because she is so kind of not comfortable. She didn't quite fit. Yeah, she. Um, so she's the one who gets hot on Joel McRae when he comes to try to get his wife back. But then they have to pretend like well, they know they're not married anymore. But uh, I think they pretend they're brother and sister is what it is. And so, I mean, she's really like tiger lady. She's out to get him. And so the whole thing keeps devolving. And then there's a really weird twist at the end that makes it all work out and be okay. Right when it seemed like
0: there's all this infidelity and well, yeah, stuff we're, happening. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's all this stuff that won't go with the code. That people are sleeping with people or being with people they shouldn't be with her. And so Preston Sturgis just pulls out of his back pocket this twist that we had no idea, which had to do with identical twins. <laughs> silly. I,
0: I, I don't think we need to go into explaining the whole thing. Let's not. Suffice to say... It's especially interesting because the twist is actually introduced at the very beginning of the movie. You just don't understand what you're watching because at Mm -hmm. sort of at the title credit sequence, there's this whole sort of like little madcap silent montage of like a wedding and someone breaking out of a closet and blah, blah, blah. So it's very nonlinear, and I think that's probably one of the things that would have confused viewers at the time. I mean, it certainly confused me, but I can roll with it because we now have so many movies that play with chronology And things like that but you kind of feel like you're watching a movie within a movie and so it's kind of an interesting breaking out a little bit of the conventional yeah um, linear filmmaking
1: but it is also kind of uh, the tone is kind of weird and uncomfortable because of the dancing he has to do around the censorship and so I think it, it ends up being a little less successful, but in a way, it's, it's one of the most rewatchable ones because you watch it and you go, okay, how do I feel about this this time? Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, I kind of see how transgressive this is or how interesting this is or how clever this is. And the beginning and the end um, bookends, those were added after the movie was made. Those were not part of the original story. He had to figure his, how to get out of this mess he'd gotten into with the censors. right. And that's and so he stuck those bookends in again. It's very clever. Unfortunately, people at the time did not dig it as much, and didn't see it as being quite as good as we do. And so he, um, they got got mixed reviews. Even the, the reviewers didn't care for it as much. I mean, it you know he still came in under budget, and he was only a tiny bit behind schedule. So he was still being disciplined, still able to handle it. And uh, unfortunately, the um, the box office was okay, so high, medium, and now he's not low, but it's not was not great. It made the money back. The studio still made money, so he was okay.
0: But and it's, it's now considered a sort of uh, a classic, oh totally an movie. Yeah. It totally
1: is, yeah, yeah. So then, um, uh, basically, he had some struggles in between. You know, um, this film. And trying to get his next film done and mostly it had a lot to do with the um the sensors again he just kind of couldn't stick couldn't get around those sensors uh, for the stuff he wanted to do but a lot of times then it did lead him into like kind of clever twists and clever ways of handling things so um he had a, a new producer who had come in and who just he couldn't get along with at first the producer seemed to be okay but he really didn't i think he just didn't like Sturgis' style. The guy was like an accountant and he, he was not an artist and he just couldn't handle this guy's style. So in 1944, so now we're, you know, he wasn't able to kind of keep on that same momentum. He really ended up just being in such open conflict with this guy. He wanted to get a film made. So he says, look, I'm going to write a script to use this small town set that you've already built and you're going to tear down anyway. So you can get, make some money out of this, this set Yes, yeah, so it won't cost you a dime. And I'm go- we're going to figure out how to change the story so that everyone will be happy. So the story is The Miracle at Morgan's Creek and it's about a woman, played by Betty Hutton, who was a big uh, like song and dance gal and they kind of wanted to get her into acting. So she's a young woman who loves going out with the, the, the soldiers and the GIs and the flyboys. Everybody's coming through, going out and partying. And sort of like it's her patriotic duty to get out there and have fun and party with these guys, right? Yeah. And she's like, she's like, and Betty Hutton just bounces off the screen. I don't think she's a particularly good actor. and never did. But she has a ton of personality.
0: Personality, energy, yeah. And good, good comedy, like, yeah. um, I don't know, instincts. everything
1: yeah yeah so anyway she goes out one night and really what the story is she gets so drunk blackout drunk and she she sleeps with a guy and then she comes back the next day she doesn't remember who she slept with
0: yeah
1: and she's pregnant she finds out she's pregnant somehow
0: she knows that the day
1: after yeah yeah right right you know whatever so she's pregnant and now she's in a mess because she didn't even know who he was so and then there's this uh, this schlebby guy who can't get into the army, who's always loved her, and he ends up being willing to to take on the responsibility of like raising her child originally she's she just sleeps with this guy and she comes back so in order to appease the Hayes Code, the Catholic League of Decency, the United States government, who was very concerned about how soldiers were were presented and perceived, and the studio, they had to. They had to really monkey with this script. And in my mind, it actually made it better because that actually made it more interesting because they had to come up with the twist or the, the, the element of the plot that she not only went and slept with this guy, they went and got married and slept together. So now she's, okay, she's not a bad woman because she's married.
0: Right. What the subtext is, it's, it's about a woman that has sex out of wedlock and gets pregnant and then how to deal with that and she doesn't know who the father is. In the film, she married a guy, and so she doesn't even know who she's married to. And so then she has her childhood friend who's in love with her, and he's like, like, I would marry you and be a father to this baby, but you're married, so how? what do we do now? Right, because then, then it's bigamy if she marries again. Right. Which, again, which is all very, very silly, because if you don't know who he is, and you don't have it, I mean... You don't have a marriage license or anything, then like, well, how you are know? you really married? The only reason she knows she's married <laughs> is she's wearing a ring. <laughs> she's wearing a soda tab on her. Oh, well, that's right, a soda tab. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's right and that's the only reason she knows she doesn't even know where she was married she right. i mean she was blackout well, and of course and, the thing is they changed yes. that too because they don't want it to be that a soldier had you know that a soldier had sex with a woman who was so drunk or that or even drunkenness they don't want that to be funny so basically it was sort of like she got bonked on the head right and and was well, like she's
0: in the middle of dancing she hits her head on a chandelier or something yeah and and how kind well, of well she
1: didn't pass out but she has amnesia so she doesn't remember anything and they oh it went around and around. It was just so ridiculous. In fact, um, the, the censorship was so intense that there's a scene where um, when she's off to having this crazy party, Eddie Bracken, the Eddie Bracken character, is waiting for her at the uh, to take her home because he promised that he would pick her up after her night of frivolity and take her home so that her father would think that she had been at the movies with him she takes his car too right she's oh like, that's right she she's like oh car.
0: can you just wait at the cinema for me cool thanks i'm gonna take your car okay bye <laughs> so when she comes back to
1: pick him up you hear uh originally in the script you had you hear the squealing of tires because she's driving crazy and she drives and, and she stops and the censor said, oh, you need to change that because of the Rubber Conservation Act. Because when you uh, drive like that and you hit the brakes, you're actually
0: burning rubber. burning rubber
1: on the road. And so they're supposed to change it to a funny toot. <laughs>
0: so, so That's the minutiae here. But then, of course, you see what happened with Veronica Lake's hairstyle and how it was such people a problem. Behave, yeah. That people were getting their hair caught in machinery and everything. So I guess it wasn't. It, it seems really silly but who knows maybe her maybe betty hutton burning rubber would would incite people to be reckless drivers that expend a lot of rubber <laughs> so she ended up trying to um so, so then he has to do
1: several machinations in the script is to figure out how she could get a divorce from this guy so she could marry this other eddie bracken character and It's all very complicated. I I don't think we really need to get into it. But we do need to talk about Eddie Bracken. If anybody's seen him, he's not my favorite of actors at the time. Preston Sturgis' taste in actors is not really my taste sometimes. Uh, I I do like Joel McRae, but uh, Eddie Bracken's kind of a weaselly-looking guy. He was never really an A-list star. If he was, he just maybe touched it and faded away. And and he's got asthma, and that's why. And, of course, asthma in those days made you wimpy. Which is, of course, not true, but that's how, you know, the prejudices they had at the time. And when uh, Sturgis asked Eddie Bracken to do this film, he didn't want to do it. He didn't. He had just done a film with Betty Hutton, or a couple films with her, and the studio was trying to build her up, like I said, to make her a star and get her into acting. And so Bracken felt that he was being sidelined uh, to sort of just be her support, and he wasn't getting highlighted himself for his career, so he was, uh, he was competitive that way. And he keeps being really careful to say it's not betty i love betty it was a studio but nonetheless he acted like a jerk to betty in terms of the acting part of it mm. uh, because he did everything he could to upstage her and all the other actors mm. he upstaged everybody he uh in the movie he's like he sees, he sees stars and he he reels and he and he and he reels all over the place and he mugs and he, he does all this stuff and to, to draw attention if a actor was to the back of the screen he would be sure to walk in front of them and all during the scene was going on which is all kinds of really rude nasty stuff that actors do to other actors when they're being jerks and you'll watch him and he's just too much he's just oh god he's just way too much but Sturgis liked it so whatever and he he ultimately said I felt deceived and what was worse I felt I couldn't trust anybody because Sturgis had promised him that this would highlight him that he would not be a second banana but he was really because betty hutton it was her dilemma and it, she was she was very bright and really you know best one in this well she wasn't really the best one diana lynn was the best one she has a little sister in this who's an actress who always kind of played those kind of parts the mouthy know-it-all
0: precocious precocious young, young, young woman yeah yeah
1: but pretty at the same time you know so i i really like diana lynn a lot I, I think she's like tends to be the one who seems like the most modern in terms of her acting, yeah. maybe that's why I like her so much. So, Eddie Bracken noticed, he, sa- he said this about Preston Sturges, that he was Jekyll and Hyde. He would verbally ridicule the stock company and the smaller actors, and he said, I felt sorry for them many, many times. Mm. So that's really... He also felt sorry for the women, because uh, even the stars, I guess he made them cry Jeez. several times. He was so verbally abusive. Oh, I've got here also some uh, notes from the censor that were real notes that were given on this movie. So censor said, Change the name of the clergyman from Upperman because the name has a comedy flavor. And you don't want to say about a clergy. Yeah, then there was the thing about the rubber conservation uh, program, which I said, I guess those were the two notes that I made. I just thought that, like you said, they're so minutiae, granular. Yeah. yeah. Then once he finished this film, one of the things that he was irritated by is that the studio released films at a certain pace, you know, in order to get people to come because you had to go to the theater and then the next week be the next two films because there's always an A and a B film that went out. And so they held his film from being released immediately because they wanted a more commercial film, which was their words, um, since uh, Palm Beach Story didn't do all that well. Part of it probably was also the producer being a jerk because he didn't like Sturgis and kind of undermining him a little bit. But eventually it came out and it was a huge hit so he's back on top again and he got nominated for the screenwriting oscar again
0: he didn't win this time but he got nominated for it so it was it was huge surprise i mean i don't think that this script is uh you know best screenplay worthy although i don't know what it was up against but it is kind of middle tier in terms of being like put some pretty fun dialogue a little snappy not too shrill not too broad (laughs) Even though it's pretty broad. It's pretty broad. But I think it's also just really
1: very clever in terms of yeah. the way he gets around censorship. And I think people appreciated that. Yeah. And maybe, maybe the, the Academy and the people, the writers are going, No, oh, that was clever. Let's, we should give him a nod for that. Because everybody was hurting under this oppression of the censorship.
0: Yeah, and I do think that it really stands out among his films. So if you're enough of a Sturgis head or interested enough after watching Sullivan's Travels, Palm Beach Story, and Lady Eve, this would be one of the ones that I would recommend just because of that being so different and sort of fresh and in the way that it's transgressive, telling a very real story about unexpected pregnancy and stuff. But he never
1: resolved it. Yeah, the story really never ended up making sense.
0: yeah. What the solution is is because they don't know who her soldier husband is. They can't figure it out. They can't find him. They go through several schemes to try and get her married to Eddie Bracken in various ways and they all fall through. But what happens is she has her babies and not only is there one baby, not two babies, not three, not four, not five, but six babies, right? And so she has sextuplets and this is like becomes this becomes a media frenzy Like it probably would in real life, and in fact, oh, it did. It did because basically it was making reference to the Dion quintuplets, and the Dion
1: quintuplets were three girls or three, five babies who were born at the same time in Canada. So Canada had quintuplets, and the first quints ever recorded ever, and so now America
0: has. Sex, sex tuplets. tuplets. And it becomes an international frenzy. And so there's like a little, whole little montage where in China and in Germany and like all across the world, they're reading the newspaper and they're like, wow, this woman with her sex tuplets. And so the US government gets involved and they basically resolve this situation Dex de ex machina. And they say like, well, Eddie Bracken has to marry her. So they, they get her married, um, which I think is kind of interesting because that in and of itself is sort of transgressive. He managed to solve the problem without having to do... A thing about whether her marriage needs to be annulled or whatever, and it also kind of highlights the power of the U.S. government in a sort of social commentary way to me, and the power of the press, yeah, which is something that Sturgis likes to comment on. Oh,
1: totally, and and making fun of me, uh, the, not just the media, but but people who consume media, yeah. And how everybody just gets totally, uh, you just wave something in their face and they're like ah, and they go after it, you know. And, yeah, and, it becomes a huge thing. And so, uh, so shame and humiliation are turned to glory and you know wealth and everything else. And and uh, so that's that's how it ends. And uh, it, it was a very clever, it was a very clever way to do it because there was no way to get out of it. Yeah, not really. No. And it's a very cute thing that he liked to do is. He had a call back to The Great McGinty, which was his, his first film that he wrote and directed that we talked about in 1940, where the people who are going, this is American, we have to get this out there, we have to make sure that everyone knows about this patriotism. So, and the governor of that state that, that they were living in was played by The Great McGinty, Brian Donlevy, comes back for his part, he reprises his part, and so do all his little cronies. So they're all at a desk, Talking on the phone, they just have one little insert cameo scene where they're talking about it. It was very cute.
0: Yeah, it makes it in-universe and ties the two movies together. So I enjoyed this one, and I I do recommend it um, if you're a nerd about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I think it's, it's well worth watching.
1: Well, guys... I've been flagged. I always think, oh, get it done. But we're coming to the end of our hour, so we're going to move into part four. I swear to you, I promise, part four will be the wrap-up of uh, Preston Sturgis. But we've got some other good, juicy things to talk about, some other movies to recommend, and we'll just talk him through to the end of his his career and life. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.